According to a 2022 article in the Pediatric Surgery International Journal, only 3% of children in low-income countries have access to surgery. This number jumps to 85% of children when it comes to high-income countries like the U.S. So what does this mean? It means that in low- and middle-income countries, many common and otherwise easily treatable conditions such as appendicitis or long bone fractures in children could result in death or a lifelong disability. Now we know that the surgical needs of children differ greatly from that of adults. Each child needs customized care, whether it's a simple fracture of the femur or a complex craniofacial deformity. On today's episode, we'll be exemplifying the work of World Pediatric Project, a nonprofit that is closing the gap in access to specialty medical care for children in Latin America and the Caribbean. We'll be learning from Vafa Akavan, World Pediatric Project's Chief Executive Officer. Vafa brings a wealth of executive leadership experience, including a career of working with complex global organizations across seven industries in 16 different countries. He served as CEO at Newbridge, a global consultancy. He was also CEO at Forum Corporation Consultancy in Boston and the VP of Global Operations, Information, and Media for a segment of McGraw-Hill in New York. Bafa also serves on the board of directors of Children Believe, a global nonprofit focused on the health and well-being of children in underserved communities. During this conversation, we'll be learning about how Vafa's passion for advocating for children grew over time. We talk about what it was like going from a career of filmmaking to consulting to the children's nonprofit healthcare space. And ultimately, we dig into the mission of World Pediatric Project and how its incredibly unique model serves children with the most difficult surgical challenges. As Vafa says, children are 30% of the population, but they're 100% of the future. My name is Hethel Baman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. Vafa, thank you for coming onto the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And especially since you just, we were just talking about it, this is your first podcast interview, so... Very, very excited. Yeah, thank you, Hatal. It's it's uh it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm obviously, you know, podcast is a such an important part of community and society today. And I'm really excited about this being my first one, particularly because it has to do with something I'm very passionate about. So thank you for inviting me and making the time. Of course. So as always, I use a question that is a little bit broad. I listened to a podcast by Brene Brown, and she oftentimes will ask her guests what their story is. Sure. And you can take it as far back as you want. Well, I mean, you know, I, I often think about how how do I talk about a, a a life that has been blessed with richness, and it's I, I think of it very much like a tapestry. Because I was born in, in Iran. I was raised a Baha'i. I went to England for school. Then I went to Canada. Then I went to the U.S. And then back to Canada. Wow. Now back to the U.S. I've worked in, I think, about 15 or 16 different countries. I've worked in seven different sectors. I've worked from, you know, startups to conglomerates. 
always the constant has been this notion of service and having impact irrespective of the environment. There's always been this notion of giving back to the community. And so, you know, it's difficult to talk about a, a background that has that kind of richness as opposed to, you know, I lived in the United States and I worked with Microsoft for 35 years and then, you know, I retired. Um, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> So it, it's really been a, a wonderful journey. The story is very rich, many chapters in the book. You know, the experiences of working in so many countries, working with so many different people from different cultures, from different socioeconomic background, you know, from the front line of a conglomerate to, you know, we, meeting with the prime minister of a country or the health minister of a country. And the learnings, you know, the reservoir or the treasury of learnings that you can gain from that kind of a life experience is incredibly precious. And I would encourage all people, especially the younger generation, to li live a life that gives you that richness, because the perspective that you have will be the perspective that's necessary for advancing humanity into the future. I agree. The episode that actually released this week, it's April 27th. I actually interviewed a South Asian therapist, mm. graduate student. So we talked a lot about the intricacies of mental health stigma within South Asian culture. Yes, not just that culture. Oh, of course. I know it spans multiple, multiple cultures. But she did say, you really can't live for your parents. A lot of times we try to make them proud. And, you know, me coming from a South Asian background, you know, my parents are first immigrants from India. Mm -hmm. and what they wanted me to, to be is doctor, right? But that's not really oh, yeah. what fulfilled me. Of course, right? Yeah. They feel as if that's the highest achievement. Yes. But I'm trying to find my own way because that's not that's not necessarily what fulfilled me. And so I'm glad to hear that. You had mentioned mm. that you were a filmmaker, and yeah. I want to I want to kind of go into that a little bit sure. because I think it's just so interesting going from filmmaking to working as the CEO of World Pediatric Project. Tell me, sure. how did that tell happen? Me, like, the, yeah, I want to ask you that because sure. I think it's so so sure. interesting. Well, I mean, I I always had, and I still have a passion for film and television as a medium to transform community. And so when I was going, and like yourself, I was brought up in a, even though my parents were, you know, very, for their generation, they were very forward thinking. They were very global, had seen the world already when my brother and I were born. Um, but still they were kind of traditional doctor, lawyer, and there's a hierarchy, right? It's yeah. like doctors are at the top. Right, right. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. Engineer. And then maybe architect, right? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We have architects on our list. Yeah. Wow. That's so funny. Actually, I saw I'm, uh, my background is in engineering. Right. And it didn't seem like that was enough. Yeah, true. So, no, I mean, my, I'm, my parents were no different than others. They, they really love you and they want the best for you, right? And it's, and it's based on their experience. But I was on this track of, you know, I wanted to be a part of transformation. I wanted to make a contribution to changing communities and to elevating the human condition. That was always a constant for me, whether it was in my work, in my career with the teams that I work with, 
or the global organizations I was with or the volunteer work that I was doing. It was always focused on how do we elevate the human condition. And so film to me, I had a passion for it. And I said, well, I can study film, become a filmmaker, and then tell stories that elevate the human condition, that, that help people gain greater insight, become more familiar with the global nature of humanity, that you know the world is one country and mankind, its citizens, and what is common between us. That was my passion. So I went into film and I remember the the university that I went to at the time, York University uh, was the only university in Canada that had a film program. If I remember correctly, there was something like around 1700 applications from around wow. the world every year at the time. They accepted about a 120 into first year. It was a four-year program. And by fourth year from that roughly 1700 to 121st year in the and every year they would cut so mm. when they would cut you either made it to the next year in production or oh, wow. or you would go into film studies so those were two distinct programs at the university so i continued making in the final year there was 14 of us what? Yeah, there was 14 of us. Now, but this is, the, this is the kicker in the story. So at the beginning of my fourth year, I just find out that I'm one of 14 that is advancing to final year. And I was really proud of that. And I was talking to my parents and my dad said, I, I'm making a long story short. He said, are yeah. you sure you don't want to transfer to business? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. And, you know, oh I, I mean, gosh. I've, I've always loved him. He's, he's always been my hero. Um, but so I, I definitely understand, you know, that aspect of the culture. But what I learned early was that one has to make decisions and one has, and there are consequences to all of those decisions. The way that I learned to, to make decisions is to really be clear about who you are at the core. And, and what you want to accomplish at the core. And so then the way in which that is expressed becomes secondary. So I realized that it, it didn't have to be, you know, it didn't have to be just through that medium, that life mm -hmm. will change and your conditions may change. Your situation may change. The situation and conditions around you may change. So you know, do you want to be so dogmatic or so fanatical about a particular medium for the expression of your beliefs? Or do you want to be committed to your beliefs and be open to how they get expressed? So it doesn't matter what job mm. you have really, does it? I mean, it, it, that's, it, it's important. But to me, that became secondary. So I was always looking for the opportunity to learn and to move. And life happened. I, I moved from film and television. I was very excited. I mean, you know, we did the first IPO. We cleared the first IPO in Canada for a film fund. It was the wow. first one of its kind. And we did some incredible work, but life happened and I had to make changes and, and I moved into uh, a different job. And from there, it led to, you know, moving to boutique consulting firm in Florida. And then from there, I went to JD Power and then JD Power got acquired by McGraw Hill. And then they moved me to McGraw Hill. And from McGraw Hill, I went, you know, an opportunity came my way. I was approached to be the CEO at the Forum Corporation, which was a global consulting firm. Now it's a part of uh, Corn Ferry, you know, and, and so life just happened, right? And it's, a, it's this notion of what am I about at the core? And can that be expressed irrespective of what the opportunity is or irrespective of where I am, what company I work for, what position? Because I've never believed you 
are defined by your rank, your title, your position, or your material well-being or not well-being. I mean, that, that to me is not what defines a person. And then I, I moved back to Canada and I was with uh, Newbridge, uh, which is again, back to the consulting profession. And I knew that I wanted to give back in a more substantive way through nonprofit. So I joined the board of Children Believe, which is a global nonprofit based out of Canada. And that's been incredible. I'm still on the board. And then I was approached about this position, which is an incredible, incredible opportunity. So aligned with what I'm interested in doing because I want to focus on children. Did you first get that interest when you were approached to be on the board for Children's Belief? I, I think I was born with that interest in children. I mean, I, you know, I married very young because I wanted to have children at a young age. I was always giving back to the community in terms of being involved with children and children classes, you know, in the Baha'i community. Um, I was always teaching children's classes and then I was teaching junior youth classes and mentoring, you know, the young, the junior youth and the youth. So the, it was always, I, I didn't articulate it this way until recently, but the way I articulate it now is that children are the future. So if you want to impact the future and you want to be strategic about it, then focus on the children because you know, children are 30% of the population, but they're 100% of the future. And we can see what the adults of today are doing to the world. So maybe we can focus on the children so that as we impact their life and the way they think and the way they make decisions in a positive way, have them focus on the unity of the world as opposed to the division of the world, then they will grow up and they will make decisions no matter, better decisions, no matter what profession they are or what life choices they make they'll be able to make better decisions for the future of humanity. And you do that one generation, two generations, three generations, then you'll have a different world. I think we're already seeing that with Gen Z. Yes, I think so. And something, the, the way that you spoke about your journey, it almost it reminded me of another conversation that I had where she said, the universe is driving and I'm just getting on the bus. Right. And wherever it stops is wherever I get off and that's my next opportunity. And it's like, I'm not Christian, but it's like the Jesus take the wheel thing. You uh, know? <laughs> well, listen, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a belief system, right? And if the belief system is conducive to the betterment of humanity, that it's the cause of unity in the world, is as opposed to the cause of discord in the world, then everyone is, you know, people that are interested in that will be on board. It doesn't matter what you call it, what you label it, right? We, right. Those people are, those are the ones that you want to, surround yourself with that are the cause of unity, that are the cause of joy and happiness and elevation. And if you can't make that distinction, that's a different problem to solve. Hmm. So you are the CEO of World Pediatric Project. It is a nonprofit that focuses on the surgical needs of children all over the world. What brought you into the space of healthcare? You know? <laughs> yeah. That's because I feel like it's very, very different, you know, filmmaking and then consulting sure. and then now in healthcare. Sure. I have several relatives that are medical professionals and I have some very good friends that are medical professionals. And one of them is a <laughs> neurosurgeon in, at, in Toronto oh, wow. and... My cousin is a doctor in the Amazon. And when I told them that this is a position I'm taking, and they were all like, what? What? <laughs> you? Yeah. No, look. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a traditional thing, right? When I first got the specification document about the position, I've had a long enough career and a wide enough set of experiences to be able to determine what 
a board of directors is looking for just or or what mm-hmm. a hiring manager is looking for just by virtue of reading the spec doc, right? The specification yeah. document, I can tell you. So my initial response was, they're not going to want to talk to me. And I told the, mm. the recruiter, you know, they're probably looking for a World Health Organization executive or, you know, yeah. someone from, uh, I don't know, CARE or uh, UNICEF or someone that's been in the field. Save the children. Et cetera, et cetera, or, right? Yeah. Uh-huh, a uh-huh. surgeon, a doctor in public health, et cetera. And uh, he basically convinced me that I should talk with, uh, with the nominations committee because they were really interested in something different. And I said, do they know what that means? There's a lot of people that say, we want something different. We want someone different. We want someone that's a change agent. And then they hire a very kind of a classic person for that job. They'll, they'll hire somebody who's done that job somewhere else very well and bring them hmm. in. I, I was intrigued by the surgery, right? That's what really intrigued me because, you know, we, we do, we, we are, pediatric surgery, but we're tertiary pediatric surgery, right? So it's not primary or secondary. We, we handle the most difficult of the difficult cases. Hmm. So imagine a child that's got a 140 degree bend in their spine. Wow. Right? Or imagine a child that essentially has, you know, two mouths, two noses, and a big hole in the middle of their face. These are very complicated, very difficult cases to do. And I've always been drawn to the extremes, mm-hmm. right? There's lots of great organizations that do great work, you know, delivering food, delivering education, delivering vaccines, helping transform communities, et cetera, et cetera. But the most mm-hmm. difficult situations, Hetal, are the easy ones to neglect and to overlook because they are the oh, difficult, wow. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that attracted me. The fact that it, the surgery to me was a trigger event in the life of the child. I love the notion of triggers. Like, so if you look for yourself in, in your life, you will probably be able to identify certain trigger events or trigger decisions that had a long lasting ripple effect, right? Oh yeah. And the surgery to me is that for that child and that family. I mean, we have one, one child, Claudia Garcia, who's two and a half hours outside of Tegucigalpa in Honduras, right? Severely deformed when she was born. Her hands are deformed. Nothing can be done for her hands. Both her legs had to get amputated. She had to have two open heart surgeries and she's had one spinal surgery and she will need another two spine surgeries, right? Her grandfather used to carry her on his back from their house, which is outside the village, to the village school so she could get educated. And then he would carry her back. Well, a few years ago, the grandfather passed away. Mm-hmm. So she's not getting any education. And the parents? The parents are not able to take care of her. Her grandmother takes care of her. We're working with her, right? That's an example of tertiary care. It's an extreme situation, right? But let me tell you what happened on my last visit to her, which was literally a month and a half ago. So we're in a van. There's five of us from the organization going to meet her, to visit with her. It's, you know, it's you you have to drive on the highway. So it's a four-lane highway. Then you get on a two-lane asphalt highway. Then you get on a dirt road for an hour. Then you get on something that's supposed to be a road. But it's <laughs> yes. not a road. Then you park the car and you walk to get to their house. Okay. Yeah. So we're getting cl- close to her place. We're still on the asphalt road. And there's a blockade. There's a mile jam in either direction. And there's a teacher strike. So they've blocked the middle of the road. 
So our country director in Honduras gets out. I'm at the back of the line. I'm driving. I'm at back of the line. She goes to where the demonstration is. I think probably about 10, 12 minutes later, she calls me and says, okay, come on through. So I get into the other lane and I'm driving down and everybody who's parked is giving me dirty looks. Like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, we know that, yeah. right? A couple of, couple of trucks honk their horn at me. I just went through. And I got to the first blockade and there was lots of cars and there was people moving the cars apart. It was like, it was a scene out of the tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the waters, the cars are parting ways <laughs> and we're going through. They're parting the Red Sea. Yeah, they're parting all of the cars and, and, and we go through and we get to the middle and there's lots of people in the middle walking around and demonstrating and so on. And then I've got to stop. I stop. And then this elderly lady comes, opens the door and literally pulls me out and starts hugging me. And then another elderly lady comes and starts hugging me. And they were basically thanking us for the work that we do in their community, right? Then we go to the other side of the blockade because now we need to exit the blockade and go out. Hmm. And a gentleman comes up and I'm stopped. I'm waiting. And the gentleman comes and starts moving people around and the car's out of the way. And he uh, opens the way and he thanks me with a motion of his hand and, you know, lots of tears throughout all of this, of course. Right. And so Ileana gets in the car and we go. And I say, Ileana, how did you, like, what happened? How did you do that? And she said, um, I went, I found the leader. I went to the leader and I said, we need, you know, to get through. And he said, why do you need to get through? She said, I told him that we were going to visit Claudia Garcia. And he said, are you the organization that's taking care of her? And Ileana said, yes. And he said, okay, we'll open up the blockade. Right. Wow. So the work that we did with Ileana was impacting the community, right? It created this bond. It created a sense of unity. It creates this sense of appreciation. It's, it's really causing the community to aspire to a higher order is what I call right. it, right? So that trigger event, the surgery will change the life of the child, will change the life of the family. And the accumulation of that is the transformation of a community. So that was very exciting for me when I was looking at this, you know, being here at World Pediatric, I said, wow, imagine the ripple effects of all of those trigger events. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, Click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Right. And, you know, her getting the care means that she could get the education that she needs that could also help. Oh, she is. Yeah. Imagine that person with those kinds of conditions being able to become an independent income earning woman in her community. That's profound. Mm -hmm. That is profound. And to also be able to help her family. I mean, it's profound. So she's we, we found, you know, sponsors for her. She has a laptop. She has a cell phone. She has internet. She has transportation to the school back and forth. 
and she was smiling so much and laughing when I was there. And her grandmother said, I have not seen her smile or laugh in five years. How, how do I beat that when I'm working at, you know, McGraw-Hill in New York? I mean, it's wonderful. I mean, that was a wonderful experience and it was wonderful. We achieved great things, but you know, nothing comes close. I think it's just, you know, everyone's priorities are different. Sure. Your priorities are to create unity. And it's, uh, it's just so nice to hear. So in terms of the model mm-hmm. of World Pediatric yeah. Project, how is that connection to Claudia mm. actually able to be made? Yeah, great question. So World Pediatric Project has been around for 20 years. So over those years, it has developed presence in 11 countries. And you can imagine that over those 20 years, you're, you're building an ecosystem, a network, uh, a network of pediatricians, a network of hospitals, a network of suppliers, a network of surgeons, a network of donors and contributors. So you have this incredible network that you've developed over the years. And then the the model begins to emerge, right? Out of everybody doing good and beginning with, we're going to send a team of surgeons and nurses down, you know, to St. Vincent and we're going to do 10 spine surgeries or whatever, Yeah. right? And then we're going to come back. Wonderful. That's great. That was the beginning. Where we are today is we have a presence as in people on the ground in those 11 countries. We have a network of pediatricians that refer children to us because they know us. We have social media presence, which means we are found by parents that are looking. And we have relationships with partners in the field. So either the partner will refer or they will tell the parent to contact us directly, right? And it's a wonderful community. So we have this um, networks that's developed, and that's how the children come to us, right? We have a model whereby there are clinics, and the, in these clinic days or clinic events, the children will come, and our professionals are down there, and they will assess the children. They'll look at their file, and they will look at their condition. They will prepare an intervention plan for them, what they need mm-hmm. to do, And then if the surgical team starts the day after, then they're fit into the surgery schedule right there on the spot. If it's an extreme case, they will be brought to the United States where the capacity for highly specialized surgery is greater than in some of these countries. So that's been the model up to now. And what's particularly unique about World Pediatric Project is that when the child enters the system, they are with us until they're 21. So they enter our platform and we are monitoring and managing their health until they're 21, which is, you know, for for us anyways, it's the demarcation for going into the adult program. So they move into the adult care community Uh, because a lot of the conditions, as you can imagine, a lot of the conditions that we're treating are continuous. It's, It's like the child is growing, right? The child is growing and changing physiologically. And so... It needs that kind of constant attention and monitoring and so on, because generally there are multiple surgeries involved over time. Now, what we've, what we have done since I came on board is we have added this focus on building to building capacity and sustainability into our model. So the notion of, you know, one of our surgeons going down to St. Lucia for surgery and us bringing nine surgeons from across the Caribbean to spend four days with our surgeon. So training the surgeons that are there, right? So, and then 
another example of that. There are great, great surgical facilities around the world. For example, <clears throat> a, a fantastic cardiovascular surgical facility in Tegucigalpa, which is at par with you know any tier one hospital in the United States or anywhere else. So, okay, so if we've got a child that's in Nicaragua or in Colombia or somewhere close by, why do we need to bring him to the United States when we yeah. can get mm-hmm. them to the care much faster there? So that's another way of helping to build capacity because as you can imagine, you've got to practice your specialty, which means you've got to have enough cases so that you can practice that specialty so you can build proficiency and, and expertise and so on. So that's another part of our strategy as we're moving forward. And then ultimately, we're looking to transform pediatric health systems. So what does that mean? So we're partnering with Hospital Maria in Tegucigalpa, as an example, to help build that hospital into a center of pediatric excellence for Honduras and for the region. So, you know, we're sticking to the core because the need is so great. And we're adding this layer of capacity building and sustainability. There are 450 million children in the world under the age of five that don't have access to safe surgery. 450 million that don't have access to safe surgery. I mean, that's incredible. There, there are two and a half million babies that pass away in the, during the neonatal period around the world. I'll give you some specific data. Guatemala loses 4,500 babies a year during the neonatal period. The average life expectancy in Guatemala is 74.5 years, right? That's 340,000 years of life lost every year in Guatemala. 340,000 years of life are lost in Guatemala every year. Economically, that's about $4 billion over that 75-year period. Every year, losing $4 billion over a 75 year period, assuming your GDP per capita stays constant. I know, I know that's a big assumption, but just directionally to think of the scale and the scope. I mean, there, there are more people dying in the world because they don't have access to this to safe surgery is five times greater than HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. Five times greater. So that's our model. That's the problem we're trying to solve. It's like, if you're listening to this, it's like, how do you wrap your brain around all of this information? Those numbers that you just mentioned, they're just almost unfathomable. Yeah. And that's why I encourage the younger generation to get that global perspective, to get that global experience. That's one of the ways that you can appreciate, understand the scale and scope of global issues. I mean, you know, give back in any way that you can. That's wonderful. Right. That's wonderful. Help in your local community. When was the last time, just to your listeners, ask yourself this question. When was the last time you sat down with a homeless person on the street, on the concrete, on the street, and shared a meal with that person and had a conversation with that person, asking them about their life? I know you've got to be safe and you've got to be secure, all of those things. But has anybody thought of doing that? That can be a very simple way to give back, to bring joy to somebody's life, even if it's for five minutes, 10 minutes. Because those are the people who feel like they, they're not seen. It's a pebble, right? We're all pebbles. Some of us are bigger pebbles. It's not a judgment. It's not important what the size of the pebble is. It's important that you 
drop your pebble into the water. That's what yeah. <laughs> and create the ripple That's right. to start. That's right. Yeah, something that you mentioned around social media during my travels to India and Honduras and mm-hmm. Southeast Asia and within like these rural com- communities, you'll see that people often have these phones and they'll have social media yeah. accounts and all of that. It's amazing. So it's really interesting to see that that's also a way that you can connect with people who might need these services. Adele, we we probably are able to connect with people more through Facebook than we do through their cell phones. Like if, wow. if we can't, because there's, there's a lot of um, uh, rotation of cell numbers and cell phones in the countries that we work in, right? If we can't find them, if, if we dial a number, we can't find them, we, we send them a message on Facebook because no matter where wow. they are, they'll find a way to access their Facebook. So we'll send a message. And then sometimes we can't find Hetal, but we know, oh, we found Hetal's second cousin. So we'll contact Hetal's second cousin. <laughs> yes. Do you know where Hetal is? No, I don't know where she is. But her aunt, who's in that other village, might know where she is. So then we connect to the aunt. Wow. Why do we need to do that? Because we need to make sure that we can get Hetal to the imaging center so she can do her MRI or her CT scan or her x-rays so that we can get those to the surgeon to do the work. We do all of that. We do all of that to make sure that the child has the proper documentation, has the proper background, irrespective of where they live, irrespective of access. We make sure that they get it. Yeah, I mean, irrespective of access in terms of like, if they're if they're in a super rural area yeah, where... Sure. There might be just like a small clinic. There might not be clinics. I mean, we've heard of people trekking hours and hours to get to a clinic, yeah. right, for medical help. Sure. Even those people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it, it again, I said it's tertiary, right? It, it's those difficult cases that, yeah. um, that I get drawn to personally. And that's one of the things I love about World Pediatric Project is, you know, n- none of our names are going to be on a hospital building. Which is wonderful to have. Thank you very much for those contributions. Please continue to make those contributions. But we've decided that this is where we want to work, right? We've decided we want to work with those children that would be the easy ones to neglect and overlook because it is so difficult. So, okay. So let's use Claudia, for example. Mm -hmm. You bring her to the hospital. She gets her surgery done. Now... There are follow-ups, right? Yes. You mentioned follow-ups. Yes. And I think within the nonprofit world, I think that monitoring and evaluation is super, super critical. I mean, first yes. of all, for, for donors to keep being donors yes. and to know that your process works. Yes. How do you track and report patient follow-ups? So we have a patient management platform where all of this information is stored. So it's entered into the information, into the platform. It's stored in, in the platform. And, you know, our doctors, our health professionals, ourselves internally have access to the information and to the file. So we're monitoring. And then our, our folks on the ground are following up, right? Okay. So our team in Honduras is following up with all the children in Honduras uh, as to where, you know, when their next session is, what the next stage is, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, that's how we monitor and manage them over time. So you have an on-the-ground team in every country that you serve? In every country where we 
help children? Yes. There are countries where we send the children. So, for example, we might send a child to the cardiac wing in, at a hospital in Colombia that, mm-hmm. that does incredible work. And then we'll partner with an organization. This year, we are sending six children to Spain for surgery. And we wow. partner with a nonprofit in Spain to manage them on the ground, so to speak, right? So pick them up at the airport, drive them to their version of Ronald McDonald House or the host family house, Mm -hmm. make sure that they have what they need. I mean, you know, we have families that come up to the U.S. and or go to Philadelphia and Chicago, and they've never experienced cold weather. So we make sure they have proper clothing. You know, we make sure that, you know, they're well fed. We make sure that they show up for all their appointments and if they've got to go from the residence to the hospital, we provide the transportation. So all of that is taken care of so that they only worry about the health of the child and that the mm-hmm. surgical team is concerned with the intervention and not the logistics and the back office stuff and administrative stuff and operational issues. So we, we take care of all of that so that they can just focus on the health and well-being of the child. And these guys, I mean, they put, I, we had a surgical team recently that went out into a facility that ran out of blood. So my country director sends me a picture of the two surgeons sitting on a chair, giving their own blood so that they can use the blood on the patients they're doing surgery on. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. You know, um, we, we're all, it's really interesting, this community that's in pediatrics, like we really care about the children so much that there isn't a lot of ego, ego, you know, it's like, Hey, uh, hello. Hetal. Yes. Um, listen, I've got this, um, scoliosis condition and, uh, we, we can't fit them in. Do you have capacity to handle them? Yeah. Well, what do you need? Blah, 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 blah. Or no, I can't. Yeah. Can you, then why don't you, why don't you call John uh, over at that organization? He might have some room. I did want to mention that Somebody that I interviewed very early on, uh, his name is Dr. Brigi, Dr. Wissam Brigi. He is the founder of Brigi Scientific. They focus on neonatal uh, mortality mm. uh, in low and middle income countries. It would just be awesome for you guys to talk. He and his team invented a neonatal incubator that is reusable and disposable. Wow. It is like incredible yeah nick you is actually um, a big part of what we do and and it is a priority for us into the future is to develop a global program based on what we're doing in nick you today so yeah happy to connect and have a conversation yeah. i think he was the third episode on the podcast so it's out you can definitely go check it out yeah you know for the future mm. where do you where are you looking to go next like what are your goals um uh, I'd like to go on a holiday <laughs> next. Nice. <laughs> um, I'm sure you, somebody like you, yeah, are like you know. No, you know, I'm. Um, it's I'm. I will continue to work in the space. Um, you know, I I want to continue working until I can, and I want to continue working with children until I can. Anything that has to do with the cause of children, because when. You know, and this goes back to your question of earlier, how do you go from film to healthcare? Yeah. It's it's really understanding what your core competencies and capabilities are and how well those align with the needs that you're looking or considering, right? Right. And I didn't need to be a health expert 
we've got health expertise in this organization, right? But what the board wanted was this organization to evolve and to develop and to mature. So it was a wonderful organization. It still is a wonderful organization. But if I can equate it to, you know, someone growing up, right? So you you go from adolescence to maturity, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's that progression that the board wanted to accomplish. What's the next stage? And that's the kind of work that I do. I didn't need to be a health expert, right? So whatever comes next for me is going to be in the same vein. Is I'm, I want to focus on things that have to do with children. I want to work with the cause of children. And it's got to be obviously somewhere where I can add value and have impact. Hopefully this will be, you know, my final, the, the final chapter in Vafa's book is all about kids. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Thank you, Vafa, for My coming pleasure. to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Natalia. It was uh, it was great to meet you, and I'm so excited that my first podcast was with you and with World Pediatric Project. I mean, that's an incredible milestone that I will keep close to my heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.